And thank you, church, for your kind generosity and hospitality, as Tim put it. Yesterday, we enjoyed ourselves in Kerry and Dave's home, the Global Mission Ministry. Uh, were so kind and generous as they reached out to us. They asked some very important questions, and uh, from their questions, you could tell that they are interested in what we're doing. So on behalf of my wife, Ziki, and our church back in Zambia, we say thank you so much, and may the Lord richly bless you. If we're in Zambia, we should have been in bed by now, so in case I fall asleep in the pulpit, you understand. So I'm just giving that disclaimer. On that note, let me ask us to stand as we turn to the book of James, James chapter 1, and we're just going to read two verses. <coughs> James chapter 1, the last two verses. Verses 26 and 27. I commence reading. If anyone thinks is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself and stand from the world. Thus far God's inerrant and inspired word, shall we look to him in prayer. Our God and our Father, we are so thankful this afternoon that we can gather in this auditorium to worship you by singing songs and hymns and praises to you. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We thank you that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching rebuke and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we receive your inerrant word, we pray that we not just be hearers of God's word, but do us also, lest we deceive ourselves. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, for Christ's sake, amen. You may kindly be seated. If you like to find out a few things about Zambia, especially where it is, Spiritually speaking, I would suggest that you check out Operation World. Most of you are familiar with that. I was looking at the latest version, which is the seventh edition. And on pages 893 and 894, it is stated that Zambia was declared a Christian nation in 1991. And that's true. The president then stood on the steps of State House, like White House, and declared Zambia as a Christian nation. And that was enshrined 
in our constitution in 1996. So you find that declaration of Zambia as a Christian nation in the preamble of our constitution. And in Operation World, there are a number of prayer requests, as you may know. The first prayer item is that this declaration will be reflected by the dedication of its leaders, that is Zambia's leaders, and its Christians to see a land blessed by and honoring God. We thank God that our country has been declared a Christian nation. Every 18th of October, we gather in different localities for a time of prayer, fasting, repentance, and reconciliation. We have a population of about 15 million people, almost about 12 million people. Can you imagine gather in one day to pray? Uh, wherever you go, there's so much religious activity. As much as we thank God for this, we need to ask ourselves, are these religious activities or acts genuine? Could it be that some of it is just for public show? Or maybe it's just external religion which leads to self-deception? In the passage before us, James is concerned about those who are religious and yet their religion is fake. So it does a test, a litmus test, to just see where, whether their religion is genuine or fake. Now, if you are familiar with this little epistle, it's like a New Testament book of Proverbs clothed in New Testament clothes. Very practical. James is concerned that we don't just profess Christianity, we need to possess it. And in chapter 2, he argues, faith without works is dead, just as a body without the spirit is dead. Of course, he's not contradicting the apostle Paul when Paul teaches that we are justified by grace through faith. James' concern is that our religion should not be external. There's no such thing as dead orthodox. Orthodox is real and practical. We use the word religion or religious even grammatically. You say that person does things religiously. You're familiar with that. Or if somebody asks you, are you religious? Most likely you say, no, I'm not. I'm a Christian. But we find that word religion or religious in this passage, it's mentioned twice. And you also see it in the New Testament. For instance, in Acts 17, Paul is going around in Athens and his spirit is disturbed when he sees that the city is full of idolatry. Luke tells us in Acts 17 verse 22 that Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So in Paul's Mars Hill sermon, he recognizes that these Athenians are religious. They are pagans, but they are religious. So religion is not so much being born again, it's just 
pious religious activities towards the deity. But James is saying, is that religion genuine? As Jesus speaks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he tells her, you Samaritans worship that which you do not know. You are ignorant worshipers. They are worshiping, but their worship is in vain. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and scribes that these people draw nigh unto me, but their lips are far away from God, quoting Isaiah. So as we sit here this afternoon, we need to ask ourselves, am I religious? Now, you don't need to say no. If you are not religious, you will not be sitting in this building because these are religious acts. As we sing praises, as we give our tithes and offerings, those are religious activities. But the question is, is this religion genuine? So as James writes to the saints in the diaspora who are being persecuted, undergoing various trials, he recognizes that they are wrestling with a number of issues and is concerned that they are not maturing in the faith. He uses the word perfection or perfect, implying that they need to grow in their faith. So he's trying to examine their religion or help them examine themselves where, whether their religion is just external. So he does a litmus test and he asks, what does it mean to be religious? So in these two verses, James offers or proposes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit three characteristics of true and genuine religion. So this afternoon, we want to look at true and pure religion. God's people at Risen Hope are religious. God's people at CCC in Zambia are religious. But is that religion true? Is it perfect? Is it genuine? You don't want to get before God at the end of the day and God tells you, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. Your religion was fake. So let's look at those three marks, three characteristics, three features or three attributes of genuine religion. The first one is controlled speech. Are you religious? Check your speech. Is it controlled? Are you religious? Yes. Are you compassionate towards those in need around you? Am I religious? If the answer is yes, do you take a Christ-like identification with the world? So look at those three characteristics. Controlled speech, compassionate service, and Christ-like identification with the world. Quickly, let's look at controlled speech as a mark of true religion. Maybe you're sitting there and saying, how can this be a mark of true religion? Let me give a disclaimer here. This sermon is not original. It was first preached by James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have issues with what I'm saying, check it out with James. So James saying, if you are religious, you need to bridle your tongue. If not, then your religion is fake. Verse 26, if anyone of you in the diaspora 
those who are washed in the blood of Jesus. He is writing to fellow believers. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So if I'm religious, I need to control my tongue. So James talks about the failure to bridle one's tongue. And that word bridle appears twice in the New Testament. The second appearance is in James chapter 3, verse 2. James says, and I quote, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. We're not talking about sinless perfection. He's a mature man. He's a mature woman. Able also to bridle his own body. We are familiar with the word bridle. It means to, to keep a rein, to rule, uh, to control, to muzzle, to keep in check. Now, a tongue wants to utter anything. A tongue wants to, to swear, to curse, to demean. But James is saying, if you are religious, you can control your tongue. If I fail to control my tongue, then these are the consequences. And when I look at that word, or that verse, it's like an allusion to Psalm 39, verse 1. And James is familiar with the Old Testament. In Psalm 39, verse 1, David pr prays and says, I will guard my words that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. So David is not saying, I have a right to say anything. By the way, my right to say something ends where your right to hear what I say begins. So I need to control my tongue. And praise God, David is wise. He says, I'll guard, I'll bridle my words. I don't just utter whatever crosses my mind. So that I may not sin with my tongue. I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. And in chapter 3, James uses a couple of illustrations or metaphors to just demonstrate how men and women have managed to control certain things. One of them is a horse. Horses can be very stubborn. You want a horse to go left, it wants to go right. Just get a little bit, put it in its mouth, and you lead it to wherever you want it to go. The second metaphor is that of a vessel, a ship. Think of a ship coming from Japan, loaded with containers, probably coming to the United States of America. This is a humongous machine, but it's just controlled by a rudder, like a joystick, a yoke. So James is saying, if a horse, if a ship can be controlled just by a little instrument, how come we fail to control our tongue? Now, probably a horse and a ship can be metaphors you can't identify with. If you're a teenager, you're saying horses, old school, I've never ridden a horse. Let's use a modern image. Airbus 380, 800, made in France. <laughs> it has a capacity for 853 passengers in a single class. What controls that huge machine? 
up to now, I can't figure out how pilots, captains manage to just suspend that thing in the air. In the past, I thought there was a big wheel that they kind of turn, only to find that it was just like a joystick. It's like they're playing computer games. Or let's take the weird-looking strato launch, which will take off in California next year. It has a length of 238 feet, a wingspan of 385 feet, a height of 50 feet. Its empty word is 500,000 pounds. Can you imagine? Its gross weight is 750,000 pounds. You expect such a huge plane to be controlled by a huge steering, but it's controlled by a yoke. So James said, look at all these images and metaphors. It only takes a joystick or a yoke to control them, but the tongue no man has been able to control. So as James discusses true religion, he first talks about the mouth. When you read the epistle, you notice that the tongue was a big issue. Almost every chapter makes a reference to the abuse of the tongue. I don't think the situation is different today. In chapter 3, it goes in details. Then James also gives consequences of failing to bridle the tongue. Even before we look at James, most of us have had strained relationships because we failed to control our tongues. And we regret whether it's in interpersonal relationships, in marriage, racial issues, you say something and you can't retract it. That's how I wish I'd not said those curse words. There are consequences. The first consequence James gives us is that if I cannot bridle my tongue, I deceive my heart. And within the chapter, James is concerned about self-deception. In verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. In verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word, not hearers also, lest you deceive yourself. So if I'm hearing God's word and not putting it into practice, I'm deceiving myself. One youth pastor was teaching young people uh, in a Bible class. And the study was from James. The youth pastor wanted the class to understand that the students or these young people needed to put God's word into practice. So as he's teaching, in application he asks the young people, whenever you come across God's commands, what do you do with them? Quickly hands went up. The first one says, I underline them in blue. The next one says, I highlight them. Listen, thank God if you highlight God's word. Thank God if you underline. It's not those who underline God's word who are blessed. It's those who do God's word. Especially these days, we have so many gadgets. You know, we have the Bible on the phone. You can listen to the Bible. But the question is, what are we doing with what we are receiving? 
So if I don't put God's word into practice, James says, I deceive myself. And when he comes to the tongue, he says, if I cannot bridle my tongue, then I'm deceiving myself. Have you ever been deceived before? I've been deceived on a number of occasions, but in most cases, I've given credit to those who deceived me because they came out so smart. One time I was flying within the U.S. and there was this ad that popped up. So here's a ticket for $90 to fly from point A to point B. I said, cool, I've never come across such a deal. So I go to the gate, say, if you don't have a printed uh, boarding pass, you pay $5. So, okay. Then I had a backpack. They say, you're going to pay $20 for that. Then I had a carry-on luggage. It was frustrating, but I thanked them. They were so smart in deceiving me. When somebody deceives you, sometimes you don't blame yourself. But when you deceive yourself, I don't know about you, it's, it's very painful. So James is saying, if I cannot control my tongue, I'm deceiving my heart. The heart is not just that organ that pumps the blood. It's the persona, the human being. So as you are seated there, as I'm standing here, if I can't control my tongue, I'm deceiving myself. Consequently, my religion is fake. The second consequence is that my religion is worthless. That word occurs six times in the New Testament. It means useless, empty, pointless, fruitless, hollow. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile, it's empty, it's pointless, it's fruitless, and you're still in your sins. Then James says, if I cannot put a check on my speech, whether I'm speaking to my kids or somebody who's opposing me, my religion is useless. It doesn't count before God. Because somebody who's been washed in the blood of Jesus, somebody who's been justified by grace through faith, somebody who has been redeemed, it doesn't just show in their five points of Calvinism or five solas, may it show in the way they come across. My speech should be seasoned with salt so that I know how to minister grace to the hearers. One time I came across these words, I can't remember the source. This person said, think twice before you speak once. They've been very helpful to me. Maybe we need that as we relate to one another. Think twice. It calls for patience. It calls for humility. So those are the consequences. And if you have time, you read James chapter 3. James is like he has a PhD in metaphors. He uses strange metaphors in James 3. A tongue is like a, a fire. It can set a whole forest on fire. And I'm thinking of the fires in California. James is saying a tongue can do worse things than the fires in California. It's a deadly poison. Then he begins to ask these rhetorical questions. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine 
bear figs, neither can salt spring, a salt spring produce fresh water. That's bad news. In fact, James says, with the mouth or with the tongue, we praise God. But with the same mouth, we curse men who've been created in the image and likeness of God. As we think about the Imago Day, it's a big issue. The good news is that at creation, God created us in his own image and likeness, the Imago Day. The bad news is that in chapter 3, that image was distorted. Not destroyed, it was marred. The good news again is that in Christ, we are being recreated into Jesus Christ. So whoever you meet, especially if they look different from you, whether they are red, orange, yellow, blue, green, indigo, violet, and you demean them based on their outward appearance or social status, your religion is worthless. With the same mouth, say hallelujah, you know, you speak in tongues and you do that. Just after that, you begin undressing somebody created in the image and likeness of God. James says, the two are diametrically opposed. But the good news is that James offers help. He's a good apostle. He was a pillar in the Jerusalem church, a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the main spokesman at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. So it wasn't just one of those small apostles. And may I propose this twofold suggestion in case you are sitting here. I'm not taking you on a guilt trip. Like I said, this message is not mine. It's James's. <laughs> I'm just doing what James intended to be. You say, preacher, I'm struggling with my tongue. My marriage is on the rocks because I've been belittling my spouse or my neighbor, my workmate. Uh, people around me have been complaining that I, I curse, I swear. James in verse 5 says, If any man lack wisdom, or any woman lack wisdom, let him ask of the Father, who gives to all men liberally and abreadeth not. I don't think that just has to do with trials. Contextually, if I'm struggling with my tongue, I can ask God to give me wisdom so that I think twice before I speak once. You read the book of Proverbs, full of words of wisdom. I only wish we could pay attention to what the scripture says. As I'm aging, I'm realizing that most of the troubles I've gotten into was because I failed to control my speech. So I pray that if we are struggling with, I'm not talking about communication skills, <laughs> just ministering grace to the hearer, speaking the truth in love. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Father who gives liberty. But when you ask, don't doubt. Because when you doubt, you are like a wave on the sea, tossed to and fro. A double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. Then secondly, in fact, in Psalm 141, Verses 3 and 4, David prayed, Set a guard, Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil, so that I take part in wicked deeds along with those who are evildoers. Do not let me eat their delicacies. 
The second solution or advice is contained in verse 19. Look with me at verse 19, keeping with the context. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I'm sure you agree with me that we have switched those around. Sometimes we are slow to speak, <laughs> quick to get angry, and quick to speak. If you interact with people at your workplace, in the community, and especially in a marriage context, sometimes we need to tell one another, honey, James 1 verse 19 says, <laughs> you can use that tonight. Maybe you're trying to speak and your spouse is trying to interject. Doesn't the Bible say, be quick to hear, slow to speak? There are so many sins associated with the tongue. Slander, gossip, malice, cursing, telling half-truths, fake news. I found these to be golden words. Amen. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For me, this is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This passage is Christocentric. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, something to follow after, a pattern to imitate. The Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, so that you might follow in his steps. Christians are called to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. What steps? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Retaliation. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is an, an allusion to Isaiah 53 verse 7 which says he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You know, when we keep quiet, we are considered to be stupid, foolish. How come somebody said that you didn't answer back? You must be dumb. No, you are Christ-like. So people who don't hit back are not stupid. They are not foolish. There are times where we need to answer back, but many times when we answer back, we've landed ourselves in problems. So I want to ask us, is your speech seasoned with salt? Do you mean stagress to your hearers? Do you get easily irritated? Do you drive people up the wall? Am I fond of hitting the ceiling? Do I go ballistic even over trivial issues? If the answer is yes, look to Jesus. No deceit was found in his mouth. That leads us to the second important truth in our passage. So fake religion is a kind of religion where religious people fail to bridle their tongues. Hence, they deceive themselves. And consequently, their religion is worthless. Listen, if there is fake religion, there must be true religion. Do you believe that? Verse 17, 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That word pure means clean, innocent. The word undefiled is used four times in the New Testament. It means chaste, sincere, genuine. So if there's worthless religion, there's genuine religion. That's what James is saying. This word is used in reference to Jesus Christ in Hebrews 7 verse 26, where the writer of Hebrews says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and stained. So true religion is holy. It is perfect. The same word is used in reference to marriage in Hebrews 13 verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. And the question is, is my speech undefiled? Is my religion undefiled? The other reference is to our inheritance. First Peter chapter 1 verse 4, an inheritance that is undefiled and fading, kept in heaven. And I pray that those of us who know Jesus Christ would demonstrate that our religion is genuine. It's perfect. It's holy. Without holiness, no one shall see God. And James reminds us that this religion is before God. It's very easy to be involved in, in religious activities for the sake of winning praise. A friend of mine once said, you cannot be rewarded twice. You cannot double dip. And that's what Jesus told the Pharisees. Their religion was outward. No wonder Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. They were concerned about the outward. Just trying to please people. So the, real, the true religion we are talking about is before God and is described as God the Father. Earlier on, James says, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Aren't you glad to know that God is our Father? There is no shadow of turning with Him. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, our Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, the fellow, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. That is our Father. Is immutable. Is the Father of lights. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. James is setting up his audience and asks, for what you say next concerning widows and orphans. I teach in a Bible school, Bible schools, I stand to be corrected. My theology is that God could have justified us by grace, through faith, redeemed us, reconciled us unto himself, and taken us to heaven. But guess what? He redeemed us, reconciled us, justified us, and adopted us into his family. Hence, we can cry, Abba, Father. We have privileges. We can say, Our Father, who art in heaven. So James is setting us up for what he's about to say next. Do you care about widows and orphans? This is where 
true religion comes in. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now he's giving a description of true religion. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now some of the English words don't kind of communicate what the original word intended to convey. When we think of visiting, it's just stopping by and say, hey, how you doing? Okay, what's going on? No, the word in the original is where we get our word episcopos. It's episceptomai. Now, elder, pastor, bishop, as we know, are used interchangeably. Elder stresses the fact that this person is mature. They are not a novice. Pastor, poor men, they, they take care of God's sheep. Then Episcopos is an overseer. So those of you who are in the pastorate, Leo, Alex, uh, Tim, you watch over the flock. I don't think your ministry is just to say, okay, how many do we have this Sunday? Okay, see you around. It's a caring ministry. Shepherding, guiding. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's Jehovah Jireh. He leads me beside still waters. And the psalmist describes how the good shepherd relates to him. His staff and his rod comforts him. Even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he shall fear no. He anoints my head with all my cup overflows. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's an image of shepherding. So a bishop or episcopal are not guys with a dog or clerical collar. Sometimes we can place emphasis on that. Or seminary uh, documentation. Thank God for those papers. An overseer is somebody who ensures that the church is cared for. Feed my sheep. So the same word is used here. That true religion involves taking care of widows and orphans. Sometimes widows and orphans have been abused, sorry to say. Kevin Carter, a South African, went to Sudan in 1993. Some of you remember the story. He went to a village of Ayod, and he found this emaciated toddler who was almost collapsing as he was going to a food camp. As he was trying to take a picture, there was a plump voucher just behind the child. And this celebrity photographer took about 20 minutes to take a picture of this dying child. Why not throw away your camera and assist the child? He received some reward and, you know, I've seen some of these pictures on social media. A guy is drowning and people are taking pictures of the guy that is drowning. They are widows and orphans refugees, uh, homeless people, it's very easy to take advantage of them. But true religion 
reaches out with compassion. Amen. To visit, to care. That is the heart of God. And you find that word visit like in Luke 1 verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. When God visits, he visits with a redemptive purpose. So it's not just checking us, oh, how are you doing? So when God comes down to Moses in the burning bush, he's not saying, Moses, how are my people doing? Oh, Pharaoh is breaking their backs. He's now causing them to make bricks without straw. Oh, too bad. Uh, I'll see what we can do about this with the angels. No. Yahweh said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them. Not to take statistics of how many people are suffering in Egypt. From the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, the exodus, of that land into a good and spacious land, and a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Mosquito Bites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So God is saying, I've seen the misery, the oppression. Now I'm coming down to do something. That is purposeful visitation. So if we are going to visit people around Philadelphia, around Abu Dhabi, there are so many needy people. We may not even need to come to Africa. We need to reach out in compassion because that is the heart of God. So when we're taking care of widows and orphans, we're not just doing it out of guilt. Sometimes it's, good. it's easy to do something because we want to soothe our consciences. No. That's the heart of God. Let me read just a few scriptures concerning God's care for the needy, for the oppressed, the sojourner. Psalm 68 verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widow is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146 verse 9, the Bible says, Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless by the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Deuteronomy 10 verse 18 executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Jeremiah 22 verse 16, he judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares Yahweh. Then God in Isaiah 1 verse 17 says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So with true religion... We're not doing it because every other ministry and church is doing it. We're doing it because God, our Father, is a defender of widows and the father to the fatherless. Like father, like daughter. I'm, being, I'm trying to be gender sensitive. Or like father, like son. So there are so many challenges as we think about immigration. How are we responding to such issues? It's very easy to get caught up in the political understanding of immigration. I know there are a lot of challenges, especially with illegal immigration. 
But what a praise item that the world is coming to us. You don't have to go to Syria. Syria is coming to Philadelphia. So what are you doing about alleviating the needs of such people? So may I challenge us that if we are truly religious, may God move our hearts to reach out with compassion to the needy. Not everyone. Those the Lord brings your way. Because one day you stand before the chief shepherd, you separate the sheep from the goats, then you say, I was in this condition, you reached out to me, I was in this condition, you clothed me. Then so when, Lord, did I see you naked and clothed you? When did I see you hungry and I fed you? Then you turn to you and say, whatsoever you did to the least of my brothers, that you did unto me. As I wrap up, the third characteristic of true religion is a Christ-like separation from the world. Look at the latter part of our verse. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, that word unstained is similar to true religion. As we sit here, how is our relationship with the world? Let me summarize three positions. One is isolation, because the, wicked, the, the world is wicked, the system, not the people, not the inhabitants, not the cosmos. That's why we had monasteries. Monasticism, you go in a monastery or convent and hide so that you don't pollute yourself with the world. I think that's a wrong stance. The next one is identification. James in chapter 4, verse 4 says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? John in 1 John chapter 2 says, Do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the love of the, 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 the pride of life, uh, the, the, the lust of the flesh, does not belong to the Father. So are you identifying with the world? I think the best biblical position is the third one, imitation of Christ. The parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and the loving father or prodigal son, it's one parable then broken up into three, was given in a context. We have sinners, tax collectors hanging around Jesus. And the reverends and men of God are complaining. This man hangs out with sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. So I want to ask you, what stance have you taken? Have you identified with the world? Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed. In fact, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed. Don't let the world cast you in its mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, James is not thinking about gross sins like immorality, murder, drugs. It's where you just close your bowels of compassion to the needs around you. Christmas is around the corner. I may not be sinning, but sometimes the way I spend my money the way I budget. There are needs around us. And through the gospel, 
we can transform the lives of needy people around us. We are landlocked, so I can't identify with submarines. You have a lot of subs in America. A submarine is designed not to operate on the surface of the land. It's meant for the sea, the ocean. And it's so sealed that it can't accommodate water inside. If it does, there'll be problems. So if it's isolated, it won't fulfill its purpose. So as a Christian, think of yourself as a submarine. If you withdraw from society, yes, you are in the world, you are not of the world. You, you have no impact. When we lived in Mississippi, one of the culture shocks were to just have a big building, Baptist, Presbyterian, then because some people that are not like those in that church begin to encroach the community. So there'll be a flight. That was a culture shock. How do you reach out to God's people if you are running away from them? Don't we sometimes run away from those who are supposed to engage? May I recommend engagement? So isolation is not biblical. Identification with water in the ocean is not biblical. Engagement is. Christ-like identification. So I pray that as we go out, the needs of people around us, not just in Zambia, in Africa, the orphans we are serving with current messes, maybe there may be more needs in Upper Derby than in Indola. And we want to go and help those people in Zambia when we are not doing anything for somebody around us who behaves different from us, who looks different from us, one of the beauties of this church is you walk in and you're saying, this is how church should be. But there are places where you can tell that there are issues here. Very homogeneous. I, I recommend incarnational ministry. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Not near us, by us, amongst us. May I challenge us to live among the people around us. Let's not run away from them. Let's move and gravitate towards them with a redemptive purpose. And on that day, God who said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I'll say to you over much, enter into the joy of your master. Father, we thank you that we can look at this passage in James. Help us not just to be hearers of God's word, but do us also, lest we deceive ourselves. Father, may you bring attention. May you draw attention to the needs around us. God forbid that we should curse and judge men and women who've been created in the image of God. And I pray for reason up that the Lord will just continue to provoke the congregation to practice two religions by putting a muzzle over their mouths, controlling their tongue, reaching out to the, le le the less privileged, and reaching out to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.